You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. So one of the reasons we cringe when churches start talking about money is because sometimes it feels like money's the only thing that matters. Amen? Like sometimes when those giving spiels or appeals are offered, it feels like all of our values and standards and the things we consider important kind of go out the window and it's a do-whatever-it-takes mentality to make sure we hit budget. And so a lot of times, a lot of believers, a lot of, a lot of like folks who are not a part of the life of the church just kind of see that sort of thing, whether it's on TV or on the internet or whatever, or in a congregation. And there's just kind of this, this, ah, I don't know if I can be a part of that. Like cringe moment, right? And so... We've been asking the question for several weeks now, just like we do every fall. Like, when we talk about generosity, is there a larger context in which to reflect on that? Does the Bible offer us something more? Like, so we're not just talking about money, we're not just talking about those kinds of things, but is there a, is there a larger context of God's self-revelation and of his expectation, his purposes for us, is there something bigger that helps us get this right and think about it well? And so for several weeks now, we've been thinking about God's character and the way his character is marked by self-giving generosity. We looked at Abraham and we looked at how Abraham is has problems that he can't solve himself. We talked about how God gives Abraham these promises of abundance and this massive influence. You don't have any children, and you're not able to have children, and I'm going to give you a family miraculously to bless all the families of the earth. Like every family in the world is going to experience my generosity through you. We focused on how God offers himself in this way. And like every page of Scripture, he's doing this again and again and again. And Ephesians falls in with that. The generosity, before it's something that we're supposed to think about or before it's something we're supposed to do, like before we ever give anything, God himself stands as the eternal self-giving one. Eternity past, eternity future, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are marked by generosity towards one another and then in the creation towards the world that they've made. And that is captured in these verses we've read in Ephesians and then it's applied to the people of the church in Ephesus. And if we follow that train of thought that this is first it's about who God is, and then it's about who we are and His purposes for us, then I think, I hope, I pray that we're in a better place. 
and that when we talk about these things, we'll talk about them faithfully and not have those cringeworthy moments. So we come to Ephesians, and as we read through Ephesians, we haven't read through Ephesians together recently, but we have in the past, so I'll remind you that Ephesians is largely about what it looks like for Christians to mature. Right? What does it look like to go from an immature Christian to a mature Christian? So Paul talks about growing up in Christ, and he talks about how God has given gifts to the church. Jesus gives gifts. Why? Why does he give gifts? So the people can grow up into the knowledge of him, so that his people can grow up into maturity, maturity in Jesus, and, and unity together in a life marked by the, the, the Spirit who is at work among us. And so all through Ephesians, you hear this kind of this is what it looks like to grow up. This is what it looks like to get deeper into the life of God. This is what he's after. These are the things that we got to watch out for, like red flag moments. And these are the kinds of things we want to pursue. So let's run away from those red flag kinds of behaviors and run towards those aspects of the character of God that need to show up in the life of his people. So there's this bigger context aimed at the maturity of the church cultivating mature Jesus followers is what largely what Ephesians is about. And so when Paul gets around to talking about Jesus himself at the beginning of chapter 5, it's striking to me. I don't, it's, this, isn't, this isn't accidental. That when he talks about Jesus, right, in the context of Christian maturity, when he talks about Jesus in the context of Christian maturity, he talks about Jesus as one who gives. I don't think that's an accident. Jesus is one who gives. And what does he give? Better question is, who does he give? And the answer is, again and again and again, always, he gives himself. He gives himself. And that, I think, helps us realize that when we talk about giving, when we talk about generosity, we need to be talking about a lot more than finances. We need to be talking about a generous character, a generous person. We need to be talking about the generosity of Jesus. And we need to understand that Scripture links that generosity of character with Christian maturity. So if I'm growing as a follower of Jesus, probably going to be, forget probably, I'll be growing a generous character. Maybe we can put it this way. The evidence of Christian maturity is all in generosity. If I'm going to be a growing Christian, if I'm going to be a mature believer, and you want to see the evidence of that, am I generous holistically? Am I generous in an integrated way? Are the different aspects of my life and my character integrated so that when people look at me, they can say, there's a person who they're just, their life is just marked by giving in a variety of capacities. Generous speech. That person's generous with her time. This person is generous in their assumptions about other people. You ever met anyone who's not generous in what they assume about other people? 
We're probably thinking about how other people aren't generous in their assumptions about us, but I invite you to like flip that around a little bit. Am I ever not generous in what I assume about other people? So that's what we're talking about. We're talk about all-in generosity, like this whole life, every aspect and facet and feature of my being, is it marked by all-in generosity? And if it is, I'll know I'm starting to grow up. Starting to grow up. So how does it work? What does Paul say? Let's zero in on chapter 5, verse 1. The Apostle Paul gives this command. It's, it's an imperative. It's an instruction. Be imitators of God. You know what God is like? Imitate Him. Now, he's not calling for uh, you to imitate those aspects of or us, I should say. He's not calling for us and the Ephesians and all believers to imitate God in those, those aspects of God that only God has. The omnis, right? Everybody know the om- omnipresent? God is everywhere present. Omniscient, God has all knowledge. Omnipotent, he's all-powerful. When Paul says imitate, imitate God, be imitators of God, he's not saying you should have perfect knowledge. He's not saying you should have perfect presence, right? That's obviously impossible, and we are invited to consider the difference between the creator and creatures, like, that's not the kind of thing he's talking about. What is he talking about? Well, he continues. It's, it's helpful. Paul frequently clarifies things for us. He doesn't always clarify as much as we like him to, but he does here. Therefore, be imitators of God. All right, Paul, imitators of God. I can't imitate God in his eternal nature, all of that all-powerful stuff. I'm frail. So what are you talking about? He says, this is what I'm talking about. As beloved children, live in love. Imitate God by living in love. And then he gives us a comparison, a model, an example, an exemplar, someone who shows us what it looks like to live in love as a child of God, the Son of God. Imitate God, live in love, just like Jesus. Who loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So that, for one thing, should tell us that when Paul talks about giving, he's not talking exclusively about finances. He's talking about the self. Because Jesus, here, the fragrant offering and sacrifice, Paul has in mind the cross, doesn't he? He has in mind Golgotha. He has in mind false accusations and kangaroo courts and unjust systems of power that take advantage of Jesus who is innocent of every charge. He's thinking of the false testimonies and how witnesses, so-called witnesses, couldn't get their story straight. He's thinking of all those preliminaries. He's thinking of Good Friday. 
He's thinking of the Lord being stripped, publicly humiliated, stripped and unclothed in front of the soldiers and the crowds. When Paul says he gave himself up for us, he's thinking of that whip. Not just a whip with one strand of leather, but a whip with many strands. And you know how this would work. They'd take these, these whips, it's got a handle, and it's got all of these pieces coming off of it, and they would take those pieces and they'd get a, like, lay it down in the dirt and like pour broken glass in it and kind of stir it around. And we'd get dirt and glass and bone and stone pieces of rock. We'd get matted into those pieces of leather. And then Roman soldiers would take that piece of leather, leather covered with bones and glass and dirt, and beat their crucifixion victims. And sometimes we get confused thinking that Jesus probably only got whipped 39 times, as if that's not that much. But we're confused because that's the Jewish regulation. Paul talks in 2 Corinthians about being beaten the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. The Romans, they didn't set limits. They stopped when they got tired of watching you bleed. So when Paul says, he loved us, gave himself up for us. He has a man in mind whose body was mutilated. whose arms were stretched wide and held in place with spikes, nails. We have these images of Jesus hanging on a cross, and they're very sanitized. I dare say if it were actually portrayed as it actually happened, you wouldn't wouldn't look. You would turn away. Sometimes crucifixion victims didn't even get a cross. They just got a a pole, and their hands would be bound at the top. We have images of, in artwork of Jesus with a little platform to stand on. It's probably not accurate historically. Archaeologists have found crucifixion victims whose feet were turned sideways with a piece of wood going down the back and a single spike punch through both angles, ankles. So your body is twisted uncomfortably and you hang, not putting weight on a wound in your feet, but actually in the joints of the ankle. And crucifixion victims, if they didn't die from blood loss, typically ended up dying of suffocation. Because when you're suspended by your arms and all of your weight is on your arms, it becomes impossible to fill your lungs with air. So when Paul says, (laughs) live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, That's the image he has in mind. Perfect love. The Son of Man who gave his life 
as a ransom for the many, for us. Sacrifice marked not only by the unimaginable physical pain, but by the stunning weight of the sins of the world in every age on his shoulders. That's what Paul means when he says, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, Jesus offers himself as a sin offering to atone for our transgressions. There's an old hymn that says, In my place condemned he stood. When you think about it this way, when you think about the horror of the cross and the pain and the mutilation and the terror and the sorrow and the grief, public humiliation and a torturous death. He didn't just do it. He did it for me. Gave himself up for us. Now there are some people in the world we'll suffer for. We talked about veterans. Many of them have suffered for a nation. Parents will suffer for their children. A spouse will suffer for another spouse. Rarely, rarely will any of us choose to suffer for someone who has sinned against us. We'd rather them just get what's coming, right? I'm not going to ask you to say amen to that. (laughs) I'm afraid of the answer. (laughs) But that's our posture, isn't it? I just want them to, they hurt me, I want them to get what's coming. But Paul gives us Jesus. God in the flesh. Who's not just the judge, he's the offended party. My sin is against him. Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned. And that one, that one shows up with arms stretched and body contorted and flesh mutilated. And all of that, all of those images, all of that reality, all of that fact, all of that is captured up in this word, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. All of it. Every bit. It's unimaginable. Like my imagination, as much as I have worked and spent decades studying the world of the New Testament, is insufficient to truly imagine the truth and the reality and the, and the pain and the infiniteness of the importance of this. All when I read this and think about it, all I can do is, all I can feel like is I'm grasping at something that's 
Like there aren't words to describe the magnitude of his love for me. There are not words to describe the magnitude of his love for you. He loved me. He gave himself up for me. He loved you. He gave himself up for you. And if you think I'm playing word games with the language of giving, it's like, yeah, preacher, I know it says he gave himself. But this, like, Paul's not preaching on finances here. You're kind of grabbing that word give and kind of moving it into generosity to fit your sermon, like what you need your sermon to do. And here's the thing. Paul, in multiple places, uses the language of not only gift but generosity to describe the cross. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we've read this together before. Verse 9, he says, You know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ. Explicitly here, he takes the language of generosity and says, Jesus, though he was rich, became poor for our sakes, so he could move us from poverty to richness, to fellowship in the perfect love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this, Paul says, is an act of generosity. It's an act of generosity. So again and again and again, the language of gift, the language of giving, the language of generosity is taken up and wrapped around Jesus on the cross. And that image of Christ in His self-giving, perfect, unfailing, matchless, undeserved, unmerited, infinite love, is held together and offered to me and to you under the word generosity. And so before I ever start talking about commitment cards, before I even begin to think about that sort of thing, can I pause for a minute and kneel my body before the man on the cross? And worship Him. And yield my whole being to Him. All in generosity <laughs> looks like the crucified Jesus. He's holding nothing back. Like he's not 99% committed to the cross, is He? This isn't kind of a, ah, you know, I want to do something for you, but I've only got so much to offer. If you're willing to die for someone, if you're willing to suffer for someone, you're all in, aren't you? I mean, there's nothing held back there. Like, if there is, let me know. There's nothing held back when his arms are stretched and his body is pierced. You want to know what all in generosity look like, looks like? You want to know what the maturity of the Son of God looks like? You look at the cross. And the word the New Testament uses for that on multiple occasions is the language of giving and generosity. This is what it looks like to be all in. This is what it looks like. Christ's whole self, his whole 
being, his whole person is given. He is self-giving love. He is generosity in a human body. It's just, what he, it's just who he is. It's who he is. And Paul says, you look at that, and you imitate him if you want to be mature. If you want to be grown up. You look at him, and you imitate him. He's the Son of God. You're the children of God. Be imitators of God. And the rest of the, like the whole context then, is about what it looks like for believers to embody the character of the self-giving one. And you probably notice that he's got a lot of do's and don'ts kinds of things going on here. But if we get lodged in on the do's and don'ts, before we talk about the character of the Savior, we will become legalists. You didn't do the right thing. You better do this or else you won't be a part of the good Christian group. And if we start with the lists, we'll miss the point. Because the point isn't behavior modification. The point is character transformation that then overflows with behavior that points to the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't have the character, forget the behavior. It doesn't matter. If you have the character, you'll do what you ought to do. And so Paul gives us the character of God in Christ and then says, here's what it looks like. Here, here are practices and habits and behaviors that need to be transformed and renewed and really healed, right? This is about healing. And so he says, tell the truth. Don't lie to each other. He says, you can be angry, but don't be angry in a sinful way. What does that mean, Paul? It means, is my anger motivated by love for others or love for me? Is my anger this inward, I can't believe he said that about me, or I can't believe he did that to me, and I, I'm seething on the inside. And that's how most of us experience it, isn't it? And that's not, that's not a generous character, is it? That's not a posture of self-giving love. So I can be angry if I see injustice. I can be angry if I feel like someone's being treated unfairly. And I can advocate for them and I can take action and I can speak up for those who have no voice and I can do that kind of work. But there's a difference between self-oriented anger, sinful anger, and self-giving anger. There's a difference. Jesus got angry. But his anger was about self-giving love. So Paul says that, like, that's got to change. People, like, you're going to deal with anger. It's got to be transformed. Put away falsehood, verse 25. Let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors because we're members of one another. We'll come back to that. Be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't make room for the devil. It's like if you're a thief, stop it. <laughs> like Paul, notice this too with Paul. Like He's not like a well, you know, Christians, you're going to struggle with sin and you hope you can get better over time. And it's just like, like Paul is not a sin management kind of guy. He's like, if you're a thief, quit. If you're a liar, stop. Like we're not managing your sin. We're dealing with it. Again, not because Paul is just consumed with legalistic adherence to a code. 
Because he is consumed with Jesus. And he is consumed with seeing the people of God embody the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's like, if you're a thief, that is a self-oriented behavior. Stop it and go to work and give some of what you earn to the needy. Notice the movement there. Am I turned in on myself or am I turned out in generosity towards others? So there's this movement. I come into the world turned in on myself and Jesus wants to heal that and turn my heart back out in perfect love for God and neighbor. Let them labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. He doesn't even say like labor and work honestly so you can have food yourself. He says labor and work honestly so you can give some stuff away. Pretty straightforward. Not hard to understand. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths. This is the one my, my brother and I had to memorize when we got in fights as children. Ephesians 4.29, let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is good for building one another up according to their need. We'd get in fights or start, you know, doing what kids do, and mom or dad would come along and say, Ephesians 4.29. Write it 500,000 times. <laughs> That's an exaggeration. It was only 100,000 times. But it becomes a part of who we are then, right? And there's this constant reminder, like we need to be reminded, am I, is my speech marked by greed or generosity? Is it about me getting my way? Or is it about me offering something to meet someone else's need? And there are times when I falter at that and find myself having to confess that sin and come back around and say, we're going to pursue this, uh, this greater good, this greater thing, this gracious thing that the Lord Jesus wants to work in me to offer generous words to my family and to others. You see what this is about? See what all-in generosity looks like? It's not just about dropping a check in the basket. Did my duty. It's about becoming a generous person. Because God in Christ is a generous God. So that has implications for my anger. That has implications for my speech. That has implications for my work. And it kind of gathers all up in this climactic moment. Put away bitterness. Right? Bitterness is about me, isn't it? If I'm bitter, it's because someone hurt me. And my heart is turned, like a little pop quiz, when I'm bitter, is my heart turned out towards the other or in towards me? In, right? She shouldn't have done that to me. He's not being fair to me. I'm bitter about that. Put away bitterness, he says, and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice. And in place of that, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ 
has forgiven you. And so now we've got two places in this text, back to back. We kind of came at them from different directions. But you've got forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven you and imitate God living in love as Christ loved us. So you've got two statements about God's character. His character is marked by a posture of forgiveness and his character is marked by a posture of self-giving love. And those two aspects of his character are intended to be reproduced in his people. So am I going to be generous when it comes time to put something in the basket? If I'm growing in maturity, yes. Am I going to be generous when it comes time to speak into a challenging situation by God's grace? <laughs> Lots of grace probably in this one. Probably, we probably need more grace for generous speech than we do generous money. Amen? Am I going to be generous when I'm tempted to be bitter? <laughs> or malicious? Like that's this all-in generosity. And Paul says if you're all-in generous like that, then you, you can be pretty confident you're growing up into Jesus. The evidence of Christian maturity is this all-in posture, like every bit of me. There's nothing held back. Jesus, everything is yes. You ask it, you ask, uh, ask it of me, my answer is yes. You want me to go here? Yes. You want me to do this? Yes. You want me to say that? Yes. You want me to give? Yes. You want me to plant a church? Yes. You want me to teach a class? Yes. You want me to change diapers in the nursery? Huh? Yes. We'll know we're all in when everything is yes to Jesus. Everything. And if he calls, and I find myself saying, hmm, I don't know about that one, Lord. I don't know about that one. I got plans. Going to do something else. I don't know about that one. When I went to beginning minister school 17-ish years ago, uh, we had to get licensed. and we like, Well, I went down to Blue Lake and spent a couple nights and took classes on how to do weddings and funerals and stuff. Uh, but at the beginning of the weekend, there was kind of a, call, a testimony time where we kind of talked about how we met Jesus and how we felt, began to feel called to ministry. And I was stunned, friends. I was stunned by how many people in the room said, you know, I felt called to ministry when I was 20 or when I was at college or when I was a junior in college. And now I'm 55 and I didn't do it because I wanted to make some money, or I wanted to be an engineer. I want, like, they, there were all kinds of lists. I didn't want to have to move my family around wherever the bishop said to go. I didn't, like, I didn't want to do. Like, I knew I was called, but my answer to Jesus was no. Multiple people in this little group of a dozen or a couple dozen or so. And each one said, now, 25 years later or 35 years later, when I don't have as much time left, I'm finally saying yes to Jesus. And I regret all the time that I lost obeying Him. That was sobering for me. Deeply, deeply sobering. 
to meet a bunch of Christians who literally confessed Jesus called, and I said no, or at least wait. Either one isn't yes. Question for us is like, are we all in to follow Jesus and change the world? Are we all in on Sundays to worship him as his people, members of one another, Paul says, right? That's an other-oriented focus. This isn't about me getting what I need on Sunday morning. It's about me offering myself to the gathered church. I'll say that again. Sunday worship is not about me getting what I want. It is always about me offering myself to the body of which I'm a member. Other-oriented. So, so is Sunday a yes to Jesus? Do I worship with the church offering myself in whatever is needed to make the mission effective and fruitful? Am I connecting with other believers and offering myself in that way to build them up according to their need? You know, to build someone up according to the need, you actually have to pay attention to their needs. But that's a mark of Christian maturity. It's a mark of growth in Christ. That's a mark of self-giving love. Am I worshiping? Am I connecting with other believers? And am I serving? I didn't even started talking about giving. There's a whole lot of other stuff to do first. Am I serving? Am I offering my body to make sure that this organization, called by God and headed by Jesus Himself, gets the job done? So when you came in today, you got a couple of pieces of paper. One says serve team at the top and the other one has the sermon series graphic the God who gives the invitation is for all in generosity and by that we mean serving and giving and the invitation is to take this piece of paper and just read over the things I will serve weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, quarterly, usher, camera operator, prayer team, welcome team, special events. I'll fix the youth supper on a Sunday night. I'll keep the nursery once a month. I'll go on a mission trip. I'll say no to myself and yes to Jesus in this way. And I'll say this, friends. If you can't fill these out with an all-in kind of thing, keep it. Just keep it. Take it home. Rip it up. Throw it away. And I'm entirely serious. If you don't want to be on a serve team, don't join one. I don't want to send half-hearted folks out to change the world. It won't work anyway. 
It'll just make a mess. I don't want that to sound harsh or mean, and I hope it doesn't. I want it to amplify the importance of what we're talking about. Like this, is, this isn't a, oh, it's that Sunday a year where we've got a form to fill out and, you know, I'll tick the boxes so I can be a good church member. Just keep it. If you're just ticking boxes, don't even take one. If you want to be all in for Jesus, if your heart is saying, he loved me and gave himself for me. He loved me. He loved me. He loved me and gave himself for me. He suffered for me. He died for me. And he calls me to imitate him. And if that puts a smile on your face and tears in your eyes, you can have a card. John Wesley once said something like this. I'm going to mess it up a little bit. He said, you give me 12 people. Just 12. I don't need a mega church. I don't even need a small church. I just need 12 people. I'm paraphrasing that. Who aren't afraid to die. And are only afraid of not obeying Jesus. You give me those 12 people and we'll set the world on fire. And we're here because he found a few folks like that. So the invitation is to be all in for Jesus. You can fill out one of these cards and drop it in the basket on your way out. If you need a little time to work on your heart, take it home with you. You can bring it back anytime. We'll take them 24 7, 365 days a year. We've got a digital commitment card on the website. All you got to do is hopepoleumc.org slash give and click con commitment card and fill it out. But when you do, make sure it represents your heart. That's what Jesus wants. He's looking for folks who are all in. He's looking for imitators of God. He's looking for people who love him more than anything else. Invitation simple. We're going to be all in followers of Jesus. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.